Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them, and my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How is everybody today? I'm pretty good. I'm drinking some ginger ale, Canada Dry, that's my brand. As you know by the title, today's, this really is a class. This is about the American criminal justice system. And I, I went round and round about this. I, I wasn't sure whether I should do it or not. And I put a couple things out on my social media. I said, who would be interested in an episode that centers on the American criminal justice system? And I had a whole lot of people that said yes. So here it is. A couple, I don't really want to call them disclaimers, warnings, caveats, I don't know. But this is going to be factual. It's not going to be me pontificating or lecturing or arguing or trying to persuade for some certain viewpoint or agenda. As you know, or you should know by now, I like to make things very non-political, objective. I was kind of hesitant to do something like this. I was afraid I would make enemies. And then I thought, oh, why would I make enemies out of something that I'm going to present in a very factual format? informational. This is going to be purely informational. All the facts I get, whether it's from like a survey or whatever the site is, I'll tell you this information is from blah, blah, blah. If it's something that I just personally think, I'll tell you this is my opinion. And of course, you can agree or disagree. As you probably know, I also have a lot of personal or I guess, job experience in the criminal justice system. Of course, I was a probation officer for 17 years, and that includes three years supervising people on house arrest, eight years supervising people on a caseload, and the other five were doing pre-sentence investigations. So if it's something that I've personally experienced or learned in my job, I'll say based on my experience. And my experience in law enforcement might be totally, well, probably is totally different than those of other people. If you're, say, a parole officer in, I don't know, a rural place in California, and I had a caseload in the city, in Pittsburgh, uh, yeah, of course it's going to be different type of criminals and crimes we see and the type of supervision we did. Yes, they're going to be very different. If you're a, I don't know, a state trooper in Texas, yes, our experiences are going to be different. So, and this is like a an anti-disclaimer, I guess. Usually here I give a disclaimer and it, it's usually when I talk about psychology and it's something to the effect like, I'm not a psychologist, I'm just a podcaster. Sort of, sort of a fancy way of, I don't know what I'm talking about, just humor me. Well, this is like an anti. I literally have a PhD and master's degree in criminal justice. So in this situation, I do know what I'm talking about, plus all my years of practical experience. So this is something I'm 
trained in, have knowledge in. I can't say that I have a disclaimer for this information, but I want to start off with a little story. My mom told me this. You know how you have, like, in, you're in school and they have, well, I don't know if, if you do or not, but we had what's called open house where the parents go and they meet your kid's teacher and in my case, the teacher would be like, and she doesn't pay attention. She doesn't work to her potential and same, same old repeat, repeat. And um, when I was in seventh grade, my mom said that she went to my uh, science class and they all, like the parents sat there and my mom said she felt bad for my teacher because some woman asked him, well, you teach evolution here. What about, uh, you know, creationism? And she said he looked all, like, flustered, and she said she felt real bad for him. And uh, I guess he said something to the effect, like, well, you know, that's just a theory. But it's what we learn in school to teach, and whatever you want to teach your kids at home is your business. So it's kind of like that. I'm going to teach you or share with you the theories and things that I learned in college and graduate school. And in my job about the criminal justice system and policing and whatever you want to think or values that you have or opinions that you have about it, that's up to you. I'm just going to give you the information. And one of the first things to learn about criminal justice, and in fact, if you take a class on it, a lot of times it'll be broken up into three sections, and those are police, the courts, and corrections. Those are the three main components of the criminal justice system. And there's also kind of a fourth that's not really talked about, and that's legislature, which would be before the other three, of course, the, the making of the laws. What I'm going to do in this talk or lesson is focus on the police because it's the one I'm most familiar with and kind of the one that, that's most familiar to most of us, that most of us interact with and you know, encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. If you ever want me to do a separate lesson on corrections, which I can do, I, I do have enough knowledge. I've been in enough jails and prisons to last me for the rest of my life. Uh, and there, there are whole courses behind corrections. You know, let me know. And also, I could really give a whole class on just the history of criminal justice because I love history. I have literally whole books on the history of the criminal justice system in America. So, you know, let me know about that. But right now we're going to focus on the police and I am going to address the following questions. Does our criminal justice system work? Is our criminal justice system broken? How can our system be fixed? And what about defunding the police? Should we do that? So the easiest of these questions, I think, I'm going to start out with is, does the criminal justice system work? Yes, it does. It works exactly as it was designed to. Our system is an adversarial system, meaning somebody wins and somebody loses every time. It's designed to arrest perpetrators, bring them to justice, and just think of a trial, any kind, doesn't matter. You have two parties. You have the defense and the prosecution. No matter what happens, the judge or the jury is going to decide in favor of one. That means the other part party is going to be the loser. 
they're probably going to not be happy. Am I right? If Are you following? Our system is set up that every time a case comes to its conclusion, you're going to have a winner and you're going to have a loser. Somebody is not going to be happy. And usually it's not just one somebody. It's a family. It's a community. It's a bunch of friends or supporters of either party. And unfortunately, the way it's set up, yes, it does work. It, it operates how it's supposed to. But because it's run by human beings who, who are not infallible or human, there's going to be mistakes made and there's going to be things that happen that people aren't pleased with. In case you didn't know, um, really, really quick history lesson. The American United States criminal justice system is based on English common law because, you know, the story how we uh, are descended from the English settlers and all that. Well, our government is based on England's government, and it's pretty much the same the way it's set up. And that's, okay, how old is this country? A little over, like, 220 years old or whatever. Unless there was, like, a, a very extremely radical overhaul, which would take years and years, the system is going to be that way for the foreseeable future. So what can we do in the meantime to make people happier with it or have it produce better results for everybody? Well, next I'll take the next easiest question. There's been a lot of talk in the past couple of years about defunding the police. So what exactly does that mean? It's actually a misnomer because it doesn't actually mean eradicating police or taking them away, which, of course, I hope we all agree is a very, very bad idea. You can't not have police. You can't have literally a lawless society that's like the Wild West where people are running around with guns on their belts enforcing their own law. I mean, I, I think we all agree that that just cannot happen. The more appropriate term is refunding police. And what they mean by that is taking the money that police get from federal, state, you know, their sources of income that, that helps them operate and putting it towards different or non-traditional ways of solving problems. Right now, about 97% of police budget goes to operational costs, like paying for salaries. And the idea behind defunding, I don't like that word, is redistributing the money into community resources. There was a study done in October of 2021, which is just a few months ago, and it said 21% of Americans wanted the police budget increased a lot, 26% wanted it increased a little, 9% said decreased a little, 6% said decreased a lot, 37%, which is the majority here, said the same. So I did some digging on the pros and cons of defunding or refunding the police. And the pros are police departments are historically oppressive and violent, and defunding could reduce violence against people of color and overall crime. Number one. Number two, reforms haven't worked, meaning reforms of police. Number three, the police aren't trained to do the jobs they perform. This one I know from experience is very true. Most of their calls are for things like dealing with mentally ill, homeless people, domestic disputes, neighbor issues like dogs, 
Um, my neighbor makes too much noise. My neighbor does fill in the blank. There's a, I have a quote here. This was in 2016. It's from Dallas Chief of Police David Brown. He says, quote, We're just asking us to do too much. Every societal failure, we put it off for the cops to solve. That's too much to ask. Policing was never meant to solve all those problems, end quote. And he's exactly right, Tara, and I'll address that more later on. The cons of defunding or refunding police is number one, violence and civilian injuries will increase. That should go without saying. If you don't have police, like I said, people are going to start to take justice into their own hands. And some people out there may be thinking, oh, that's cool. That's a really good idea. Vigilante justice. And... Other people like me are saying, no, that's not a good idea because to deal with the problem of lawlessness, you need to be trained and you need specific gear and equipment and knowledge. Number two, the level of police misconduct is overstated. I'll, I'll get into that later. And number three, this is my personal favorite and I really agree with this. The police should not be disbanded, but held to standardized national regulations and international human rights laws. As it is right now, in the United States, there are about 50,000 federal, state, and local police departments, none of which have any common regulating agencies. They're all just kind of floating around out there. Next question is, what is wrong with our criminal justice system? And... We could talk for days about that. There's a lot wrong with it. There's a lot right with it, too. But there are a lot of things wrong. And instead of really... Well, I'll make a few highlights. This really makes me sad that studies have shown that there are a lot of people who don't trust the police. I guess be based on personal experience. So they're afraid to call them to deal with problems. And this could be anything from a fight with a neighbor to somebody's literally beating them or trying to kill them or something, and they're afraid of the police. That's just not right. I know it's easier said than done that we need to stop that, but, and, and I don't have the answer to that. There is a lot of corruption in the police. It's usually at the higher levels, like among the DAs, prosecutors, judges, but there is corruption. And how to deal with that is very difficult. It's not something that I have an easy answer to, or I don't think anybody really has an answer to. The answer, of course, is accountability. And I think that's going to be the answer to just about every problem that we discuss here, is the police need to be held accountable. DAs, courts, judges need to be held accountable for their actions. A lot of these people are elected. So if you're concerned about this, make it your business to learn about who you're voting for. And these judges that you elect, the DAs that you elect, find out the senators and so forth, people who make laws, find out their records. That stuff's all public information. We touched on this before, but the police aren't trained for what they deal with. Did anybody ever watch Live PD. This was my all-time favorite show. And I'm not really into TV that much. And sadly, it's not on the air anymore. But if you don't know what it was, I'll just briefly tell you. They, meaning some cameramen, followed a select number of police in different areas all over the country. Some of them were 
like big city police. Others were smaller, like maybe township or municipality. And they would follow them on their shift and they would record what the police did. And I loved it. I just absolutely loved the show. And they had on the show a panel of people who would discuss. They'd be like, okay, now here's Officer Smith from Phoenix. He's answering call on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And let's, let's watch. And then and they would discuss in their words what went on. And one thing I liked about it, it was very educational. You got to see real cops at work. And then you got to hear real cops analyze what you just saw. Why couldn't they do this or that? Or why did they choose to handle this in this way? And I know before you say, well, of course, these cops are going to be polite because they know there's a camera watching them. Okay, fair enough. But they always were exceedingly polite. You know, good evening, sir. May I see see your driver's license? And I've never been pulled over. People say I drive like a grandma, but whatever. I have driven with people who've been pulled over. And no matter what state we're in or what uh, the situation, they have always been exceedingly polite. Good evening, sir. May I see your driver's license? I have never had a bad experience with a police officer. And it's not just because I was in law enforcement. I mean, I'm talking as a civilian. I never have. And I'm sure people have. And that sucks. I mean, it it really does. They're not supposed to act that way. They are taught that you're not supposed to treat people shitty. You're supposed to treat people with respect like humans. And unfortunately, we can all probably think of an asshole cop that we've known. If you would take a survey of people that I had on either house arrest or regular probation, if they were asked, was I an asshole? (laughs) I think a very high percentage of them would say yes, but you got to look at it the way of, um, I didn't violate their rights. All I was doing was my job. And because they're criminals, well, um, they don't tend to view law enforcement with um, respect or admiration. And that's just the nature of the beast. I've also known asshole teachers, too many of them, in fact. I've known asshole cashiers or people who cut hair. You name it, just fill in the blank. Yes, I've known a miserable person who did this job. But when you are a profession like a police officer, a parole officer, a judge, a doctor, as in Dr. Dunch, you are held to a higher standard of behavior because people's lives literally depend on you. So if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak, you're having a bad day, you know, whatever the issue may be, everybody's human. We all make mistakes. But when somebody in law enforcement makes a mistake, it is seen as a bigger deal, as it should be, than somebody of some other profession makes a mistake. Oh, I actually had a point. I was (laughs) sorry, I got off on a tangent. I was talking about live PD. Very few of their calls were what you would call life-threatening, like somebody's life is literally being threatened. You know, they have to go in guns blazing, all that. Uh, Somebody was robbed. A a serious crime was committed. Most of the crimes that they responded to were, and these are actual things, I'm not making these up, neighbor disputes. You wouldn't believe the problems that neighbors have with each other. Whether you live in the country where your nearest house is half a mile away, to whether you're in an apartment building where everybody's on top of each other. 
People find everything possible to complain about their neighbors. My neighbor's music is too loud. My neighbor's dogs are too loud. I'm not, I'm not making this one up. My neighbor's Christmas lights are too bright. My neighbor parked in some place that, for whatever reason it is, I don't like. So many things of this nature. And the police would say, well, okay, based on the law and the ordinances of this city or this municipality or whatever, here's what I can do. And they would say what they could do. They would go to the neighbor and say, we had a complaint about noise. We had a complaint about your dog, blah, blah, blah. Their options are kind of limited when you're dealing with this stuff. And I'm going to talk about this later is you have to, at some point, turn to creative problem solving to try to make people happy. And some people, and I think we can all pick a person that we know that just likes to call the police and complain about stuff. Or maybe not the police, but maybe um, some other kind of authority. They, they just, it's like a hobby. And I know some of them. And I want to tell them, find a hobby. Read, knit, watch TV, do something. But quit bothering public servants over stupid, stupid shit. Um, a lot of stuff dealing with animals. Uh, there's a cow in the middle of the road. Again, I'm not making these up. There's a snake in my house. I, I don't know. It was a big snake, too. I remember it. And caught just, he just picked it up and took it out. I have no idea how it got there. When I was little and we lived in these apartment buildings, somebody called. I don't, I don't know who it was. It doesn't matter now. But the point is somebody called the police because there was a garter snake. You know what a garter snake is? Like a foot long climbing their coffee table. So they called the police. I assume they just picked it up and took it outside. I don't know. But the point is that most of these calls are what you call nuisance calls, wasting police time with trivial things that can be handled amongst themselves. Like, why don't you go knock on your neighbor's door and say, excuse me, your music is like really, really loud. Could you please turn it down? Chances are they'll say, yeah, if they don't, then call the police. But a lot of these things can be solved among people themselves. By the way, if you ever want to call the police because of an animal in your house, don't call the police. Call animal control. That's what they're there for. Most places do have an animal control. Just look it up. Today, everybody has computers and smartphones. If you ever have a snake in your house or a hippo. By the way, if you ever have a hippo in your house, make sure you take pictures and, and show me because I love hippos. I'm just trying to lighten the mood. I don't really see a hippo in the house happening, but I think you get my point. A lot of calls have to do with dealing with mentally ill people, and I've seen this both on TV and in my career. Somebody is maybe smoke some marijuana that had laced with something crazy and they're totally out of control. They're trying to kill themselves. They're having some kind of breakdown or mental health crisis. And it does happen more often than you think. There are people who are trained to deal with stuff like that in emergencies. And all I'm saying is the police should know who these people are. Um, I don't know if, if every place has the same name for them. But here in Pittsburgh, we're lucky enough to, one of our psychiatric hospitals has like a emergency response team that they send trained professionals to a psychiatric incident. Those are the people that should be called, not the police, because a lot of times they just, and it's not their fault. They're not psychologists, counselors, 
trained in stuff like that. So a lot of a lot of talking talk about defunding, refunding. What we want is to send people who are trained in certain types of incidents instead of like a regular patrol officer who, through no fault of their own, just doesn't have the education or training to deal with a lot of things that they're called to. This one, I'm sure somebody has written it somewhere. Somebody else has figured this out. It's not unique to me, but it is my own personal one here. And little history lesson, because this is important. The founder of modern policing is Sir Robert Peel. You may have heard of him. He was an English dude in the early 1800s. He formed what we know as the first modern-looking police force. And they were called Bobbies. I think they still, in England, English listeners, let me know. Do you still call them Bobbies? Because his name was Bobby. Get it? Bobby. He said, quote, the police are the public and the public are the police, end quote. And this is very, very important. The police should be representative of the community that they serve. And remember, like in the 50s, you'd watch cop shit. No, I was not around then, but I've seen cop shows from the 50s, and they're all white dudes with the same haircut. Well, people don't look like that anymore. Your police force needs to look like your community, and that's men and women, different races and ethnicities. That's hard to say. Different um, lifestyles, sexual orientation, however you want to put it. Um, different talents and gifts, different types of personalities. They need to be like a microcosm of the community at large. If you have like an inner city police station and they're all white men, there's something wrong with that. You may disagree, but I've learned this in my training and my experience, and I'm going to stand by this. Men, you may be calling me a uh, sexist or I don't know what, but studies have shown that women are better at some tasks in policing than men are, and that is mainly de-escalation. What de-escalation means, it's something that I, well, all of us where I worked, were trained on. We had to do a lot of different kinds of trainings, but de-escalation was something that you had to have. And another word for it is verbal judo. It's how to use your personality in words to de-escalate a situation. You don't even need it to do it in law enforcement. You can just do it in your own personal life. And we would actually role play. Say a cop comes upon two people fighting. There's ways that you can go in and approach this, and I'm not being sexist, but it's just kind of how we are as people. Men are more likely to antagonize the situation. Women tend to be better at reducing the stress and bringing about a peaceful resolution. I'm a very big fan, obviously, duh, of women in law enforcement. I think that a lot of us have things that we can bring to the arena that a lot of, and I'm not saying it all by any any means, a lot of men, just in the way they're socialized, which I think is maybe starting to change, don't. Women tend to be better at, I hate to use words, they're, they're kind of pejorative words, mothering, nursing, caring. I don't really like those words, but they are kind of applicable 
if you're dealing with a situation of conflict, maybe a hostage negotiation, people fighting, some kind of difficulty. Best phrase to use, I think, is 99 times out of 100, you get more bees with honey than with vinegar. And I found this true in my own personal career and also my job. Believe it or not, when I was an EMT, a lot of times there were we would be called to situations where there was actually a crime. The police are already there. Somebody is hurt either as a result of they got hit, they got, I don't know, hit by a car, run over, they're on drugs, whatever it is, we have to deal with this person. A lot of times patients are uncooperative, and that's putting it mildly. I know some, one of my uh, paramedics that I worked with literally got choked by a patient. He would have killed him if the police hadn't pulled him off of him. I was always good at conflict resolution, you know, stepping in and calming people down, saying, hey, you know, pulling the aggressors apart or comforting a patient or somebody who's hurt. There's a whole skill set involved in de-escalating situations, consoling people, comforting people. And you don't have to like this person. You don't have to be their best friend. All you have to do is your aim, when, when you're in law enforcement, your aim is to have a peaceful, possible of resolution you can to an incident. And by that, I mean that nobody's killed or hurt. I don't know if they teach that in the police academy, but hopefully they do. Hopefully they should. And really common sense should tell you that if you are in any way in a position of authority, whether you're a police officer, you're a teacher, whatever you are, and somebody's fighting or somebody's unhappy or somebody's creating a problem that if you deal with it with humanity, then you will probably have a more effective resolution, a solution where everybody's happy. If you come across this as a police officer, if you try it and the person's still nasty or aggressive, then get out all your tasers and your whatever it is that you need to deal with the situation. Not not saying let people walk all over you by any means, but and we're actually taught th taught this. I don't really want to get into this because it's long, but I taught use of force. It's on a continuum. There's a use of force continuum where you start out with this and then you end up, the end is lethal force. And in order to be justified using lethal, lethal force, you have to go through every step. The bottom step is officer presence. That just means you're in your uniform. Hello, I'm the police. Many people will stop whatever it is that they're doing wrong, fighting or whatever. If they don't, then you can go on to step two, which is verbal control, which is anything from knock that shit off to stop, stop resisting, whatever the situation calls for. So a key word in police is diversity. And we're going to talk a little bit about what purpose of the police and law enforcement are. This was pretty old. It's by sociologist James Q. Wilson it's from 1968, but it's still accurate. Three purposes of the police. Legal, which is enforcing the law, arresting people, preventing crime. Second one is maintaining order, which is like minimizing disturbance. Third is providing service. And that's everything from giving directions to first aid to helping motorists. Many, many things there. And one time... I was on my way to work. I lived in part of the city and, well, yeah, I was on my way to work. I was on a bridge 
one of like the 500 that we have here in Pittsburgh, one of which collapsed like just a couple days ago. It was all over the news. I don't know if you saw it, but that was a surprise to absolutely nobody. And I got a flat tire and a police officer stopped, saw that I had a flat tire and he changed it for me. And I couldn't thank him enough. I'm like, you are so nice. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And they do do nice things. They probably do more nice things than they do rotten things, I think. But unfortunately, if they do do something bad, it can have very, very bad consequences just by the nature of the job. More recent is the goals of the criminal justice system, and I'll address each one of these. There's five of them. The first is preventing crime. And if you're asking yourself, well, how do the police prevent crime? The answer is that police traditionally have been reactive as opposed to proactive, meaning they come when a crime occurs. But if they spend some time being proactive, what they do, they not only prevent crime, but they get to know the citizens better. A lot of them have programs for kids and for the community. And these are just a couple of examples that my police department in my neighborhood has. They have a bike safety program. The kids can take their bikes and learn. I don't know what they, I guess, well, bike safety, how to be safe on a bike. Meet the officers, which is really nice, I think, just to get to know your police officers in your neighborhood. We have a drug program in our school where an officer or two goes and explains the dangers of drugs, and they interact with the kids. They talk to them and, you know, like a meet and greet thing. One thing we have in our community that our fire department does, and probably they have this other places, but I think it's a great idea. We have an accident staging. We do it at the high school every year, and we take a smashed up car from somewhere, and we get a couple volunteers, put stick them in it, pretend they're you know, accident victims. And the whole school comes outside because this is held in the spring. It's outside the parking lot. They get to watch the firefighters and EMTs cut the victims out of the car and put them in the ambulance and so forth. And it's educational because the point of it's supposed to be to teach the kids not to drink and drive or, you know, you'll end up like this. But I don't know about you, but I didn't learn to drive till I was graduated from high school. So that stuff never really did any good for me, but it's good because it involves the community. It's teaching people about any accident, like what to do, what not to do, some first aid, meet the firemen, meet the EMTs. And after this, oh, the cops are there to meet them. After that happens, we get a lot of kids who are like, wow, it looks really cool to be a firefighter or EMT which is exactly what we want. We also let people tour the fire station, show off our equipment. And if you don't know, in fire lingo, equipment means fire trucks, fire engines, ambulances. One firefighter meets another, they say, what kind of equipment do you have? That means, tell me about your vehicles. And it's something that just part of our culture. Inevitably, if one firefighter runs into another one, they'll probably ask that question because it's just something that something that we're interested in. But the point is that you want to get your police to interact with the community as much as you can. I was walking down the street one day with Nathan and our chief. Why? Well, I mean, I know him. I know him from being in the fire department, but he stopped and chatted with me. And th- that's nice. We want 
stuff like that. We, we want more positive interactions between the police and citizens. Or that does work both ways. You can always stop if you're just a regular citizen and you see the police somewhere. You can say, hi, I'm such and such or whatever, whatever it is. Just chat with them. And we do appreciate stuff like that. The next goal of the criminal justice system is protecting the, protecting the public. They do this by maintaining order. Um, if there's a riot, and we know that those happen, that's an unsafe situation. People are likely to get hurt, and that needs to be curtailed. I know um, we see some of them on TV. It's easy to criticize. Look at those police. They're doing this and that and this and that. Well, it's always easy to judge something that you don't no. When you're in law enforcement and you do something or you respond to something, it's easier, easy for people to criticize, but they have no idea what we have to put up with and what we have to deal with. It's very easy to criticize what you don't understand. Number three is supporting victims. That actually is a function of law enforcement. This is usually done by an agency who's better trained in things than the police are. Here in my county, we have a center called, well, it's called the Center for Victims of Violent Crime. And these people are wonderful. They're counselors and therapists. They're trained in this. They deal with victims of, well, violent crime, family members of murder victims. I've talked to them on a number of occasions, and they're very professional, very helpful. I'm glad that we have them. And anytime something happens to somebody, we also have rape counselors who I think they're volunteers. And if somebody's been raped, the police refer these people and they're with you every step of the way. Again, wonderful people and police do know about the resources in their area to help victims and they will refer you. Number four is holding offenders responsible. That um, kind of is a no-brainer. Number five is something that we don't really think of, and that's helping offenders return to society. And that means, yeah, people who were in prison integrate back into society. And a lot of times that is really, really hard for people who have been in prison for a long time. That is mainly done by parole officers. I was, just to be, just to clarify, I was not a parole officer. I was a probation officer. If you don't know what the difference is, Probation is the absence of a sentence. A judge puts somebody on probation. It just means supervision. Like I used to call it adult babysitting. Parole is defined as conditional release. If you're in prison, you may get a parole. That means we will let you out of prison on the following conditions. And everybody who's on parole has conditions. They must follow this and this and this. Parole officers, well, in Pennsylvania anyway, they are employed by the state, their state employees, means basically they get better pay and benefits than we did. I think their jobs are harder. And they're all also is for federal parole. And what their job is, is to help somebody who's been in prison, get back on their feet, get back in society, make them a productive member of society. A lot of paroles and probations come with special conditions. Some are easier to enforce than others. I used to hate when I would get a phone call from somebody to complain about it, one of my defendants, and they would say, you know, I saw so-and-so in a bar last night, and they're on probation. They're not allowed to be drinking. And I would say, excuse me, but 
I know what their conditions are. And unless it was a very specific, maybe like a DUI or some alcohol-related offense, very few of my people that I supervised had that restriction. And I would tell people this. No, they, they are allowed to be at a bar. I don't recommend it. And I would tell people when they come in for their interview, we will go over what their conditions are. One of the things I always said to them was, don't do anything stupid to call attention to yourself. Don't go out in public and cause trouble. Avoid places where trouble is. It's like we had several of them in my area, nuisance bars. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that I supervised didn't have any common sense. But I tried to tell them, use your common sense about who you hang around with, where you go, what you do. Just don't be stupid. And like I said, unfortunately, sometimes it was like talking to a brick wall. And I have another list of five for you. And I wish I had a blackboard so that you could see me writing these. The five biggest challenges for law enforcement today. And if you Google this, no matter what site you come on, you're going to get to see these same five. Human trafficking. This is getting to be a bigger and bigger problem, believe it or not. And I was really shocked and disturbed this statistic. The United States is one of the worst places for human trafficking. Worldwide, there are almost 25 million people, that's men, women, and kids, involved in this. And I totally was unaware of what a big problem this is. You might want to listen to my, if you're interested in this, I did an episode on some dude named Jason Pope last year, and it's about, he's a suspected human trafficker, but he has a lot of sex convictions. And I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea that this was going on. And I feel the need to do an episode about this and educate people about it. So that, um, if you're interested, um, listen to that episode if you haven't. Number two is mental illness. This is not a surprise. 44% of jail and prison inmates have some kind of mental health history. This is very easy to see why. So many mentally ill people go untreated because they can't afford their medicine or or hospitalization. And it's really, really sad. You see a lot of homeless people that are mentally ill. They can't afford a house or food, let alone medicine. And this is especially, it seems true with with people with the more serious disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar. I've seen a lot of defendants that are bipolar when they get manic do really, really stupid shit. Like one guy I had, I don't know what he was thinking or why he did this, but he got manic and he decided that it would be fun to drive his truck through somebody's cornfield. And well, when bipolar people get manic, uh, Luckily for me, this has never happened. The most stupid thing I've ever done while manic is spend a lot of money on stuff that I don't need. A lot of people, unfortunately, commit crimes. They get into fights. They go get drunk and maybe get a DUI or maybe do something. Maybe they get involved in drugs or something that they wouldn't do if they were on their medication. And This is why it's so important to have people trained in this particular area dealing with these people instead of the regular old uniformed police. Like I I went back to, um, we have a special mental health crisis team here out of one of our hospitals. Going hand in hand with that is drugs, drug crime. 
65% of the U.S. prison population has a substance abuse problem. That's more than half. I would say that's a problem. And the problem is twofold here. One is the availability of drugs, and two is the need for drugs. Why do people take drugs in the first place? And I think in this situation, if we study the causation, the why do people take drugs, that it's a better way of fixing the drug problem. In my experience, I have seen many, many people that are addicted to heroin. And the lifestyle that comes with heroin is a lot of times it turns people into criminals. People that are addicted to heroin do stuff that they would not normally do. I've seen that myself in my job. They rob people. They burglarize houses. They maybe kill people, all because of they're addicted to a drug. And I think most of the people that I've interviewed, either supervised or did pre-sense investigations on, got addicted to heroin because they were first addicted to an opioid painkiller, like Percocet, Vicodin, something like that, that was legitimately prescribed to them by a doctor for a legitimate reason. Then what they find is they're hooked on this shit and they find that heroin is cheaper. So you have an honest person who works and, you know, does their business, contributes to society, etc. They maybe have an injury or they're in an accident, they're in pain, they get to the doctor, the doctor says, here, have, you know, 500 Percocet or whatever. They get addicted through no fault of their own because this stuff is addictive. And now they're in a real pickle. And that's a complex problem. It's nothing that can be solved easily. But I'm, I'm sure we all agree that it is, it is a problem. Number four, one of the biggest challenges for law enforcement today is cybercrime. And this would be, of course, relatively new since maybe the 90s. And this includes everything from data breaches, ID theft, cyberbullying, um, sharing of child porn. I, don't, I think there's a, another word for it. They use child sex abuse images, sharing of those cyberbullying, um, stalking, cyber stalking, that's a thing. And if you have not been a victim of one of these, let me know, because I can, I myself have been a victim of a couple of them. One of them was identity theft. Somebody, I don't know, somehow got a hold of one of my credit card numbers and bought airline tickets to Spain. Fortunately, my bank was right on there. So they're like, um, this girl literally doesn't leave her house except to go to Walmart, and now she's going to Spain, and we should probably look into this. Fortunately, they called me, and they're like, what's up with this? And I had to go file a police report, but I'm sure we all know there are actual branches of the police and law enforcement now who do nothing but investigate cybercrime. The last issue, or the main problem facing police today, is homeland security. I think we can all agree that we don't want terrorists hurting us. And this, of course, is foreign and domestic terrorists. And that's a whole separate issue, but it, it is a main problem that we have to deal with today. Okay, there are two general types of justice, retributive and restorative. And I'll go over briefly what each type means. The general definition of restorative justice is an approach to justice where one of the responses 
is to organize a meeting between the victim and offender. And the aim is to compensate the victim. This supposedly gets the offender to take responsibility and gives the victim a more active role in the justice process. Studies have indicated that this form of justice has a higher rate of victim satisfaction than retributive justice. Retributive justice is what we have typically and historically seen here in the United States. Its emphasis is on punishment, and it holds that punishment is effective in effective in deterring crime. There's two types of deterrence when we talk about deterrence. There's individual and general. Individual means for that person, such as in theory, if a person gets punished for a crime, whether fined, prison, whatever, that they say, oh, I didn't like that punishment, therefore I'm not going to do whatever it is again. And general means the general public or society in general says, oh, look, that person went to prison for doing such and such. I don't think I want to do that type of behavior because I don't want the same thing to happen to me. In retributive justice, the theory is that punishment changes behavior. It focuses on blame and guilt, and it emphasizes the adversarial relationship. That's what I talked about at the very beginning. Restorative justice is mainly about making the accused person assume responsibility for their behavior. It holds that punishment alone is not effective in changing behavior. Rather than focus on blame and guilt, it focuses on problem solving and the future. And it aims to have a dialogue and negotiation between the two parties, like victim and offender. There was a 2000 study done at the University of Pennsylvania that indicates that with the restorative justice, there's a higher degree of victim satisfaction, meaning the victims of crimes are more satisfied with this. Although the concept of restorative justice may sound kind of newfangled or a modern construct, it actually has its roots in the early 19th century. And a couple communities or societies that have had a lot of success with this are the Maori of New Zealand, you know, the indigenous inhabitants of New Zealand, and the First Nation people of Canada, again, people that are indigenous. Critics of it, though, say that it trivializes crime, fails to prevent recidivism, and lacks legitimacy. So it, it's not without it, its downsides. Also, it may not be available to all, all offenders for, for all offenses, and victims may reject this idea. And another one is it can cause, if it can backfire, it can cause psychological harm to the victim if the offender shows no remorse or otherwise is uncooperative. So I'm not going to really pick which one I like. That's a matter of opinion. I'm just telling you what the two theories are. And one place that does successfully use restorative justice is King County in Washington. That would be like the Seattle area. In 2005, they started a, uh, it's called restorative mediation. And they use it in juvenile court where you would have like the victim sit down with the offender and you would have a mediator and you would have the um, offender 
like apologize to the victim, take responsibility. And I think that would definitely be more effective with the juveniles. It's a, a nice idea in theory, but as far as whether or not it would work, especially in the in the adult system, um, well, it's open to interpretation. Here's another issue, one of the problems with our criminal justice system. The United States is the world leader in incarceration. We have more people in prison, jail, and on probation and parole than anybody else in the world. It's almost 7 million people. That's a lot of people. And you know who pays for people to be in jail and prison and on supervision, of course, is the taxpayers. So what we need to do, and this is my opinion, is find alternatives to prison and jail, such as programs, drug and alcohol, and mental health programs. Another big one that I'd like to mention, and of course I have inside knowledge of this because I work there, is house arrest. And that's when somebody is, of course, confined to their house, and usually they have some kind of tracking device on them. Where I worked, it was a little radio transmitter that was attached to their ankle. And there was a box in their house that would tell us if they were in their house or not. And the good thing about house arrest is they have to have a job. We say you have to support yourself because they have to pay to be on the house arrest program. It's a sliding scale according to what their income is, but instead of the taxpayer paying for this, the defendant, the offender is paying for this. And they're also out working and earning a living so that they can pay restitution if there is a restitution victim. They can pay their court costs and they can be a productive member of society. There's also what we call pre-trial house arrest. And this would be in lieu of being in jail awaiting trial. They're out on monitoring pending their trial. Again, the benefits here are that the taxpayers don't have to pay for their upkeep and that they can support themselves while they're on house arrest. It's also good for the so-called deadbeat dads or, well, just deadbeat parents. If you're in prison or jail, you're obviously not able to work and pay for your kids. But if you're on house arrest or some other kind of creative supervision, then you can pay for yourself, your kids, your court costs, your restitution, all that stuff. So I don't think a lot of people are aware of the existence of house arrest and how beneficial it is. And of course, if somebody does something wrong, breaks the rules, there are a lot of rules. Depending on what exactly it is that they do, then we just haul them right back to jail and say, okay, you had your chance, you screwed up house arrest, you're going to serve the rest of your sentence in jail. And I, I had to do that a number of times with, with people that I supervised on house arrest. A couple things we have here in my area, and I'm assuming that they have them other places, we have something called drug court that just deals with drug and alcohol offenders and we also have mental health court, which deals with the mentally ill. And the difference is the people, meaning the judges and the prosecutors, are more trained in 
how to deal with the mentally ill, where to put them as far as programs, and how to treat them, and how to get an effective resolution. Even in a probation and parole department, we had what we call specialized units or specialized caseloads. We had somebody that had a mental health caseload. They would have a much smaller number of people that they had to supervise. And we had people who had sex offenders, just sex offenders. They were specially trained in how to deal with these people, what to look for, and they're tricky. They will come in, they'll report regularly, like religiously. They'll follow all the rules. They'll be like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, three bags full, all polite and everything. And then you might go to their house and find um, images hidden on their computer. They're really, really sneaky. I've never, well, maybe a couple. I've personally supervised a couple sex offenders, and I've interviewed for pre-sentence investigations a number of pedophiles or other types of sex offenders, rapists, etc. And the pedophiles are truly a different breed. These people, I think, if there's a factory that makes people, they're just made in a whole different factory than makes normal people. They're brains are different. They don't think like regular people. Everything that they say and do and think and their whole experience is just different. It's really hard to explain. And a couple of the ones I met are extremely charming and manipulative. And I could easily see how they could get a kid to go with them or talk to them or whatever it is. So to recap, what we need is alternatives to prison and jail. Because think about it, when you go there, it's, you've probably heard prison referred to as crime college, especially the younger kids, like if, if they go to juvenile detention. What they do there is they learn how to commit crimes from the other kids and the same with adults. They just learn better in different techniques to commit crimes for when they come out. And I'm certainly not saying that we should not put anybody in jail or prison because the purpose of incarceration, one of the purposes is to protect society. If you have somebody running around shooting people or raping people, robbing people, obviously you need to put that person away from society so that the people are safe from this person. And a final concept that I want to introduce you to, if you haven't already heard about this, chances are you've heard the phrase, but you might not know the details of it, is community policing. It is defined as a strategy that is based on a partnership between the community and the police. So it's basically making the neighborhood or the community a partner with the police in preventing crime and deterring crime, solving crime. This was started in the 80s, actually. And by 1997, 85% of the departments, police departments in the United States, had tried some form of community policing, some more successfully than others. And studies have shown that community policing reduces crime and the fears of crime. But studies also show that most of the departments that tried some form of community policing 
failed to result in a shift in the mindset of the entire department. Meaning, say you had a department of 50 officers, maybe like 20 would participate in the community policing programs and events, and the rest of them would be like, ah, you know, I don't believe in that bullshit. So unless you have your entire department on board with this, it just won't work. And studies have shown that that traditionally has been the case. So for your homework, think about what you can do to solve the problems with criminal justice. And yes, there are things that you can do. Since we're concentrating on the police in this episode, what can you do as a citizen to improve how the police operate and do their job? There's there's actually a number of things. I think we've all seen the videos of police acting badly, doing things wrong. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. They should be held accountable because they are answerable to the public. But you rarely see videos of them doing good things. I've seen a few, like uh, they rescue an animal or they there, were, there was one where a cop stopped and, and played basketball with the neighborhood kids. If you, whenever you come across examples of police doing things good, share that on social media. Make, make it known that they're not all bad or, you know, as they've recently come to be portrayed. Learn how the criminal justice system and the police work. If you have kids, teach them. A lot of schools have what's called civics class. It's like basically how the government works, how the police work, etc. I didn't have that class. We didn't have that in, in our school. I don't know if they do now or not, but I think that is definitely a, something that kids should learn how their government works. So many kids, they don't even know like who their senators are or who the vice president is or basic stuff that people should know. So instead of dumb shit like geometry and stuff that doesn't even make any sense and nobody uses, I think that people should learn how the criminal justice system works. If your police have community programs, get involved. And chances are they do have some form of community programs you probably have some form of neighborhood watch. A lot of departments have the citizen review boards. I know Pittsburgh has something to that effect, like some kind of board that citizens are on. And they, uh, if there's some kind of incident with an officer, they discuss it and, and so forth. I don't, I don't really know too many details of it, but most police do have something for the citizens to get involved with. On the other side of the spectrum, if you find yourself questioned by the police or maybe suspected of something and you didn't do anything, know what your rights are. That's part of being a responsible citizen is knowing what your rights are. And of course, the most obvious thing is don't commit crimes. That one should kind of go without saying. So I hope that everybody learned something Next week, I'm going to do the results of the poll that I had on social media. Remember the poll that said, uh, what case would you like to hear? Serial killer, killer kid, or killer couple? And I found a case that is a good representative of the winning topic. And it's a good one, I think. And I think that Yins will find it very interesting. That's next week.
And I finally hit 15,000 downloads. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody who listens. And February 4th is actually my one-year anniversary. True Crime University is one year old. I didn't think it would last this long. I didn't think anybody would listen to me. But here I am a year later with listeners around the world, and I'm so pleased with it. I'm so happy that everybody joins me here in the classroom to learn about crime and criminals. And I will see everybody here next week. Class dismissed.